And we're going to be taking a look the next several weeks. We started last week. Dan kind of did an intro of the Holy Spirit. But we're going to take the next several weeks here and look at the most definitive portion of Scripture dealing with the Holy Spirit and the giftings of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how the Holy Spirit works in our life and how the Holy Spirit works in the church. And that, that Scripture, we're going the most detail about this is in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now we've been looking at chapter 13, this whole passage on love on Sunday morning. And so we won't go through all of that again. We'll touch on what it means about the gifts as we get there. But we're just going to kind of take this scripture and go right through it. And I believe it's going to answer a lot of questions for us. So let's, let's stand together and let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, let's dive into this a little bit. There's a lot of confusion uh, about, the Holy, about the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now listen to what is written to us here in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Some, some passages will say, don't want you to be ignorant. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a good interpretation of it. It's, a, it's really the fullness of what this word means. Is he, he wants us to have full knowledge. The, the, the Holy Spirit who's inspiring this wants us to have full knowledge of how the giftings work in our life. He goes on to say, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them and all and all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good sunday we asked you to be praying for uh, nicaragua and what was going on there and there's still some turmoil there uh, but our missionaries are, have sent us a, a really good report of some things that have happened in the last few days uh, but we need to keep praying for them that that peace will come uh, to Nicaragua, and that the changes that are happening there will be good for the country. And just remember our missionaries as we pray for them. Lord, today, as we look to your word, we know your word is here for our profit. Your word is here for our good. And, and today, we come here with a hungry spirit. We come here, Father, with an open mind and open heart uh, to learn and to capture the fullness of what you want us to capture. You say you don't want us to be ignorant, and we are here so we will not be ignorant. We want to be wise and knowledgeable in the understanding of the moving of your Spirit in our lives. So help us in all of this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Everybody said, as we start this tonight, I want to just remind you that the role of the Holy Spirit is of highest importance to our lives. It is the Holy Spirit that really empowers us 
and moves in us and makes our lives eternally fruitful. Now, I would tell you, you know, this is one of the places where uh, if man was writing the Bible, uh, you, you probably wouldn't get this story. You, you'd probably look at the church and say, okay, different people have different skills, and they've got to figure out what they want to do and all of this. But what this does is this tells us that no matter what personality we have, no matter what makeup or background that we have, that God himself chooses how to use us and then he empowers us to have victory and he empowers us to be used of him and he empowers us to overcome. This is why we are not caught by the circumstances of life. It's why we are able to overcome even the worst circumstances of life with a measure of peace and joy in our life because of the Holy Spirit. It's why no matter what temptation there is that may beset us, we can overcome it and live in victory and be glad it's not holding us because of the Holy Spirit in our life. So understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, understanding how he moves, how God moves in our life by, through his Spirit is essential for us to having victory in life. The work of the kingdom of God uh, is, is of high importance to the work of the kingdom of God in the church and in the world. We don't go out into this world and try to simply logically convince people to follow Christ. We go out and we share the truth and we let the Holy Spirit move and convict people and draw them to salvation. I was sitting this week uh, with a young lady who got saved just in the last month who comes from a background, a very unchurched background. And we're talking about how in the last year, how God has moved in her life. And I said, what was the key moment for you? And she described this key moment when she's in a, in a service and a song is being sung and the Spirit of God becomes so real to her that she knew she needed to ask Jesus into her life. That is the working of the Spirit of God. And we were able to go back and talk through in her life how God's been moving in her life for over a year to bring her to that point where she would hear and know him and open her heart and receive him. This is what we're going to look at over the next several weeks on Wednesday night. We're going to take 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 and just kind of go through them uh, pretty much verse by verse and see what this book what this, this portion of Corinthians has to say to us about our, the Holy Spirit in our lives, in gifting, in prayer, and how the Holy Spirit moves in the local church in a healthy way. Now, we know that Paul is the author of Corinthians. However, whenever we say those kind of things, uh, you know, I always want to clarify it and say, you know, really, the Holy Spirit's the author. The Holy Spirit has inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Man is just the tool in his hand. He's the pencil in his hand that God is using to reveal himself uh, to us. So when we read the Word, we may say Paul is the author, 
but the Holy Spirit is the one who leads the writer. It is the desire of God to communicate truth to us. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it's all about the Holy Spirit working in our lives and how the Holy Spirit is, is going to work in the church. And what we see here instantly is that it's God's desire that we are properly informed. Now, I, I always watch for things like declarations like that because here's what it says. If God is saying to you, I don't want you to be ignorant, uh, the, the initial thing we think, oh, so he doesn't want us to be ignorant. But the other side of that that you've got to realize is, oh, that means we can't be ignorant. That means we can miss the truth. There's a possibility that we could miss something. And so God is revealing something that he doesn't want us to miss. Not only is there a possibility that we could miss something, there's a possibility that we can warp, we can abuse, we can mess up what he's offering to us because we choose to be in ignorance about it instead of closely examining the Word of God. And, and that's what I want to challenge you to do. The gifts of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning of the New Testament, from the very beginning of the birth of the church, have been abused by ignorant men. Here we are in Corinthians, the very beginning of the church, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, which many believe is the first book of the New Testament ever written, deals with abusive things and ignorant things that happen in the name of the Holy Spirit and things that get in the way and, and there's correction coming. This is completely unnecessary. The Word of God is clear about the working of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is clear about what, he, what the Holy Spirit is going to do in our life, but there are several things that get in the way. One, the emotions of men get in the way. We emotionally let ourselves get carried away in things that we wish were true, that aren't true, and emotions can carry us to places that have nothing to do with Scripture that have no foundation in Scripture. And so emotions can, carry us, can, can, can get us carried away. The desire, the hunger for power that men lust after, the desire to be somebody, the desire to have some sort of spiritual power over others and, and to be somebody spiritually gets men to abuse the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, and it happens all the time, and it's happened throughout the generations. Listen, the traditions of men, maybe that we have grown up in, uh, maybe that we have seen, but if you examine them carefully, do not bear the fruit we proclaim they're going to bear but our traditions that we want to hold on to 
and say this must be true because this is what happened 20 years ago and we kind of fantasize about some tradition can take us away from the real truth and the real power of the Holy Spirit and can grieve the Holy Spirit and harm the church. The rejection of gifts by men who have witnessed that abuse keeps us ignorant of the, of the, of the real truth. All of these things combine to leave us ignorant and abusive of the gifts. And so part of the goal of this class is that, that in this room that we will have this growing biblical insight and knowledge about how the gift of the Spirit, how the gifting of the Spirit works in us, how He works in us, how the Holy Spirit works in the church so that we can allow the health and the power of the Spirit of God to move in us and it not be about man, but it be about the Spirit of God. So we're going to be going through these passages to see what they say. Not what does, you know, some author say. Not what does my tradition say. Not what, what does my, you know, my desire for things say. What does the Bible say? The Bible has to always be our standard for faith and conduct. The Bible. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to see some scriptures in here that people quote all the time. They quote them all the time. And, and they quote them and, it's, and they become abusive with them. And they're right next to scriptures that bring boundaries into them that they never quote. They completely ignore. They don't pay attention to them at all. And you'll say to them, what's the next verse? And they'll go, I don't know, because they don't like what the next verse says. We, we don't get to pick and choose which verses we like and don't like. God has given us his word so we can walk in truth. And this happens, this happens from people who don't believe in the gifting of the Holy Spirit anymore. They will quote out of these verses and, and, and try to make you think it's not real, and it happens by people who want to see some traditional Pentecostal experience happen, and they ignore verses in here. And what we've got to come to is, okay, what is, what is Scripture really teaching us? And over the next weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Scripture says. Now, to do this and to get this, we need to understand a little bit about Corinth and Paul's relationship with them. So we're going to lay a foundation tonight uh, so you can understand who he is uh, who he's talking to and why he's talking to them the way he is. And this will help us get a grip of what's uh, going on here. By the time of this writing, Corinth is a major city of trade inside the Roman Empire. It's in Greece. It's a metropolitan area, a fairly large area. In its history, Corinth has been destroyed by the Romans they came in and, and battle and destroyed the city in about 146 B.C. Completely wiped it out. Very little left of it. But then Julius Caesar, about 100 years later, comes along and he recognizes the location of the city, the trade routes that are going, 
and the things that, are, that, that could possibly be there. And he rebuilds the city. And one of the things that the Romans would do is when Roman soldiers had reached an age where they had put in their time in the Roman army, uh, they would take them and help them locate in key areas of the empire. We find this in Philippi, and we find this in Corinth, where they began to rebuild Corinth at first primarily with Roman soldiers who had retired. This did uh, several things. One, it, it spread the empire with people who were very loyal to Rome. And it was people who were used to being under uh, Roman law and Roman rule, so the cities would be very easy to set up with Roman law and Roman rule and, and know how to function inside of those things, and it'd be a very loyal community. Now, because of its location, Julius Caesar was pretty smart, uh, because of the location, almost everything that went north and south through, through Greece would pass through that area of the country, uh, eventually passing, as, as they built Corinth, passing through Corinth. And so it became a major trade center. And before long, it was populated by Romans. It was populated by uh, Greeks who moved into that area. It was populated by Jewish people who moved into that area. It was populated by other peoples from throughout the Roman Empire that would come and find a good place of trade and a good place to make money. And they moved into Corinth. It had Corinth uh, geographically had, uh, was not only a key place for trade and for transition through the empire, but Corinth had a 2,000-foot granite mound in it that they fortified. And it became a place that if there was a battle or there was an enemy attacking them, that most of the city could get into that fortified area and be safe until the Roman armies could come. And so they had this fortified area, so it was a safe place for people to be. And, and again, it was populated by a lot of ex-Roman soldiers who knew what they were doing. And so it was a, a safe place for people to live. Not only that, but inside of this granite area, they had established uh, a, a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And this was, uh, Aphrodite was the goddess of love. Now, we've been talking on Sunday morning about agape love. And that agape is one of the words that gets translated of love, and it's this, you know, wanting the best for others. Uh, and that there are other words. The one word uh, that you see very rarely, if, if at all, in the New Testament is another word, eros. Eros is a sensual, sexual, passionate uh, expression of love. And that's what Aphrodite was, the goddess of Eros, the sexual, passionate, uh, physical love. This, this, this temple that they had there, 
housed, they, they say, over a thousand priestesses. Uh, these were ritual prostitutes. Every kind of sexual act, every kind of sexual perversion, every kind of sexual conduct that you can imagine was a way of expressing your loyalty and your worship uh, to Aphrodite. And these prostitutes would come out of the temple at night and go out into the city and encourage people into all kinds of sexual uh, con misconduct. The city quickly became known for its sexually moral corruption. They had a Greek word uh, that they built off of the word Corinth that meant, uh, in the way we would interpret it, to behave like a Corinthian which meant to be grossly immoral and caught up in drunken debauchery. It was just the, the, the complete letdown of all moral standards and all moral conduct. And this is what is now in the center of this city and the center of their trade. Paul's going to come into head-on conflict with the leaders of this temple as he begins to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Paul lists some of their actions when he's appealing to the church that has been started in Corinth. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. He's speaking right to the, the pagan worship and the things that happen inside of this temple and outside of this temple in the name of Aphrodite. He said, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, let me remind you, these kind of people, the people who continue these actions, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. The culture, the culture that they had there pushed, especially against the sexual, the, the sexual more, pushed completely the other way and said this is the one of the ways you honor this goddess, Aphrodite. It's by being sexually immoral. And Paul's walking into it and saying, no, if you behave that way, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. And then he says to the church, and such were some of you. saying, this is the way you guys were acting. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now, that's good news for us. Because that says these people who were all of those things 
uh, became justified by the power of Jesus. Which means to us, what? We can be justified by the power of Jesus. That's good news that, that these people who were caught up in this cultural uh, worship of Aphrodite and the kind of thing that was going on there, they could be set free and we can be set free. But he's warning them, you can't conduct yourself this way. You can't live uh, this way. Now, Paul had arrived at Corinth on his second missionary journey, and he ended up staying there for about a year and a half, and, and he established the church, and he had uh, some pretty good luck there. The chief, what Paul would do when he went into a city is the first thing he would do is he would seek out the Jewish synagogue or, or whatever they had there to worship in uh, if they met outside someplace, and he would begin by explaining Jesus from the Old Testament and why Jesus had to die on the cross and why he had to be resurrected. And he would explain that to the Jewish people and that Jesus was now the Christ, the Messiah that they were looking for. And if they wanted to have peace with God, it was now not through the law any longer, but through Jesus. And invariably through that, some Jewish people embraced it. And in this case, the head the, the chief leader of that Jewish group becomes a Christian. But other Jewish leaders rise up in opposition to Paul. And throughout that next year, year and a half, they are rising up and building opposition to Paul and to the church and to his message. And they are political enough and wise enough to go out and to stir up uh, the worshipers of Aphrodite and say, look what Paul is saying, what this guy in this new sect is saying about you. This, if this takes hold, it's going to destroy all of us. And before long, there is a pretty big turmoil there. Now, what happens in this case is they drag Paul, and they drag the Christians before a new Roman proconsul who comes in to rule, and he kind of looks at him and goes, uh, this is a religious issue. This isn't a, a political issue. You guys are all crazy. Just leave me alone. And let's Paul go. But the pressure against Paul, Paul's now become such a, a lightning bolt of opposition that he feels like at this point in time that he can't be a benefit to the church. He ends up leaving there and going on to Ephesus and leaving the church to continue to grow without his pastoral leadership, and off to Ephesus he goes. Now, sometime in the next period of time, while he's in Ephesus, he writes a letter to Corinth. And uh, this letter explains some things about uh, different giftings and different things and different questions he's heard. That letter has been lost to us. That letter apparently was not uh, and spiritually inspired, uh, and it was lost to us. We, nobody knows whatever happened to it. Uh, but what happens is as that letter comes to them, the church at Corinth sends a letter back to Paul asking a bunch of questions about what he wrote about. In the meantime, Paul has, uh, has heard about some of the things that are taking place in the Corinth church. So he's heard some very 
troubling things about what's happening in the Corinth church and the way they're conducting themselves. And the people have asked questions uh, about the first letter. So the Corinth church at this time is an immature church. It's not doctrinally as, as founded. It needs a, a strong leadership in it. So that the church itself is troubled and the church itself is out of order, which is really interesting for us to capture. Churches that don't follow the Word of God get that way. Listen, we have a lot of churches in America, places that call themselves churches in America today, that meet every Sunday that have abandoned the Word of God. They've walked away from the Word of God. They promote and teach things that are secular, meaning godless, in the name of being godly. They support things that will send people to a Christless eternity. They look at the Word of God, and they say it is a writing from antiquity that we can't count on. We don't even know if it's true, and they dismiss the Word of God, and they call themselves Christians, but they're not. We've got them all through our city, got them all around the world that have abandoned the Word of God. Now, Corinth hadn't abandoned. They, they didn't, the, all, they had, all they would have had would have been the Old Testament. They, they didn't, they, they, all they had was the teaching of what was going on, and Paul is trying to correct that. But we need to understand that the enemy, the enemy of our soul, spends a lot of time in church. He wants to bring division. He wants to bring confusion. He wants to help the culture to encourage a godless culture to influence the values of the church. He, he wants us to get... Now, we're just home folks tonight, right? The enemy today is working desperately to change the church's view on homosexuality. Desperately working to change it. Because the second he changes that and we don't preach the truth any longer, we condemn people to a Christless eternity. So the enemy's always working to pressure the church to go along with the culture of the world. And sometimes the church is foolish and we see cultural encroachment being whether we wear ties on Sunday morning or not instead of being the doctrinal core issues of truth. And we end up fighting about music styles and arguing about dress styles or hair lengths or whatever other cultural thing may be going on at that point in time instead of seeing the true doctrinal truth moral issues that are clearly established in the Word. And so wise people, this is what we're trying to be, have to see past all that stuff. We have to get past it. I'm so grateful uh, that when, when, when some kids started getting saved back in the 1970s, it came out of the hippie movement and some of the, 
you know, cultural movements of the day, and they came into our church and get saved, and, and they, they had, you know, long hair and, and came in in jeans and T-shirts, which is really, you know, any of you who are wearing a T-shirt tonight, you can thank God for the hippie movement in the 70s, because uh, up until then, you know, you wore suits and ties all the time if you were a guy. And, and some people came to my dad and said, what are you going to do about that? And he said, nothing. I'd rather have men in the church with long hair than outside the church bald. I'd rather have him be here. Let God worry about all that. What did he say? He said, listen, you're majoring on a minor. The, the major is they're in church. They're hearing the word of God. They're coming to the altar. They're asking Christ to begin to rule and, and reign their life. That's the big deal. How long the boy's hair is is not the big deal. That's not the, that's not the issue. The issue is, what are they doing with their heart? Are they surrendering their heart to Christ? Are they becoming the moral, godly, God-fearing people they're supposed to? Wise men and women see that. They capture that. They, they capture that in all the different styles and tastes that we have, and they can separate all that out and say, you know, well, hey, I'm never going to let my hair grow that long. That's not my thing, but I'm sure going to love my brother who does. Amen? And so this, this is what we have to, have to... So the enemy's always at work. He wants to weaken the church. He wants to destroy the church's influence. And wise followers of Christ protect the church. We protect the fellowship that we're a part of. We protect it from disunity. We protect it from immorality. We protect it from the destructive hand of the enemy, and we work to keep it in order. We strive to keep it in a godly place where the Holy Spirit can bless it. So there were some, there were, there were some, some trying to do in Corinth, uh, they were trying to do good things in Corinth, but they did not have the word to guide them, and there were others that weren't. So as you look through Corinthians, what you discover is that there are these factions in the church. Right off the bat, Paul begins to talk about them. There are factions. Worldliness has come into the church. Sexual, sexual corruption has come into the church. Covetousness has come into the church. Swindlers, people have been swindling each other, and there's lawsuits between believers taking place in the church. And there's idolatry as well as other corrupt actions around communion and the use, of, uh, the use of the gifts of the Spirit. So two of the big things that Paul's going to address is he's going to address corruption around communion and what's happened to communion. And he's going to address corruption around the gifts of the Spirit. That's where we come to in chapter 12, 13, and 14. And, and in the church of Corinth, debate over all of these actions about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed and where they were free and what was a celebration and what they could do. All of, these, all of this is happening in the church because there's no foundation in it. And so things that we clearly see, I mean, if you would have shown up at, a, at the Corinth church uh, with, a, with the background that we have and the Word of God that we have, and we had walked into the Corinth church, I think all of us would have been appalled at their actions. Now, we can't condemn them too much. 
because, first of all, they came from a very secular society, and they didn't have a lot of foundational background to learn from. That's what Paul's pouring into them and trying to help them with. Uh, and so we, we just have to be aware of that. So here's where we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians. Here's a, a typical outline. You can find many different outlines for, Corinth, for, for 1 Corinthians. But here's just a real simple one for you to look at if you want to see uh, what, how Paul is writing, how he is addressing issues in, in Corinth. In, in Corinthian, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, through, you know, through, verse, through chapter 3, he's talking about unity and that we are unified around Jesus' name. It's not about him. It's not about Apollos. It's not about others. It's about Jesus' name. In, in, in chapter 4, he's talking about this attitude and the spirit of servanthood that followers of Christ are supposed to have. In chapter 5, he begins to talk about morality and begins to, to establish Christian morality. And in chapter 7, he's talking about marriage and how marriage is supposed to be conducted and the value of marriage. And in chapter 8 through 11, he's talking about liberty. And really what he's talking about in liberty, here's where we get confused, he's talking about liberty from the law as a way of salvation and freedom that we have in the grace of God to not earn, have to earn salvation. Then he talks about men and women in the church in, in chapter 11. And later in chapter 11, he begins to talk about communion. And so many times when we talk about communion, we will quote, when we receive communion, we'll quote right out of this passage of Scripture and the instruction that we're given on why we're doing communion. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, it's really centered around spiritual gifts. Even chapter 13, which is about love, it's about the expression of spiritual gifts that we do this because we love and want the best for people, not because we're trying to get something for ourselves. Chapter 15, he's going to talk about the resurrection. Chapter 16, he's going to talk about stewardship. And then later in 16, he gives some personal greetings. So, we're going to focus on chapters 12, 13, and 14 and the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the church. So let, let's go back to chapter 12 and, and look at this again. And then we're going to wrap this up for tonight in just a minute. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. So he's talking to this troubled church who's abusing spiritual gifts. And he says, I, I do not want you to be uninformed about them. He doesn't want them to get pitched out. He doesn't want people to be ignorant of them. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Let me say that again. The same God who empowers these gifts all in everyone 
To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul is addressing some of the questions and abuses that have happened inside of the the church of Corinth. Some strange things have been happening under the name of the Holy Spirit. One of the false doctrines that uh, the church had to battle from the very beginning was what we call Gnostics, Gnosticism. And in a nutshell, very simplistic terms, the Gnostics believed that everything in the flesh was evil and, and, and what was in the spirit was good. And so they kind of separated the flesh and what they would teach and say is you can do anything in the flesh. You have no boundaries in the flesh. You can live any way you want to in the flesh. It's going to die. It's going to go into the grave. It's cursed. It's going to be over with it. And it's no problem. As long as you are saved in the Spirit, you're just fine. So do you see how this plays out in a church like Corinth? Where they say, listen, you can do whatever you want to. If you want to go, you know, be sexually immoral with the, with the prostitutes uh, of Aphrodite, hey, it's just your flesh. It's just the flesh. It's going to die. It's corrupt. It's no good anyway. You can't save the flesh. It's, it's, it's worthless. Now, your spirit's been rejuvenated. Your spirit's been, and that's what's going to go stand before God. So however you act in the flesh is no big deal. This was one of the main spiritual attacks the enemy brought on the church was this whole attack. And so how this played out with this Jesus is accursed is they would say uh, that just before, you know, Jesus went to the cross, the Spirit left Jesus and went on to heaven, and his body went to the cross, and Jesus, you know, was hung on the cross and he was cursed. His body was cursed, and his body got what the body gets. Which is absolutely false doctrine. And that's what they would say. And they would say this under the guise of speaking in tongues or or prophetic words, saying that they were speaking under the gifting of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is telling them, listen, if they say Jesus is accursed, they're not of the Holy Spirit. That's not what they are. That's, that's false. You just need to, we want to clear this up right now. If somebody's doing that, you need to silence them. You need to stop them right now. This is no good. This is the doctrine. The flesh is bad. Basically, your flesh can do whatever it wants. So it would have promoted the body of Jesus curse, but the Spirit of Jesus is departed. It would have also have said that Christ is Lord. It would not have said, they would not have said that Jesus is Lord because Jesus was the fleshly part of the Son of God that was here. And the Christ was the spiritual part And so he's saying to them, no, Jesus, you know, you've got to be able to say Jesus is Lord. Now, this 
this would have been a, a, a difficult thing for so It would have been difficult for the Romans. They would have had a hard time with that because when you proclaim Jesus as Lord, it's going to put you in direct conflict with the Roman government where only Caesar is Lord. This is what brought the church into absolute conflict with Rome because the, the church, one of the things we have to be able to proclaim is that our only Lord is Jesus and that any other Lord is, is not really uh, the Lord. So today we would see this in any prophetic proclamation person speaking in tongues and there's an interpretation of the tongues, somebody just saying they're speaking by the Spirit of God, that in some way denies obedience to Jesus as revealed by the Scripture. If any prophetic word runs contrary to Scripture, contrary to Jesus being our final Lord, then guess what? That's false. That's got to be rejected. So today, you have a, again, there's a whole bevy of people who in the name of Jesus are saying, oh, uh, homosexuality is okay. Uh, it's, it's fine. You know, it's just people loving each other. And we've got to learn to accept this. And to say something else is, bigoted and hateful, and you're just a hater. But anything that goes against what the Scripture says is false. Uh, This goes into, uh, let me push this a little, uh, the Christian who marries the non-Christian. Now, they got married before they were saved, and then one of them becomes a Christian. The Bible says, Corinthians says, if they'll stay with you, stay with them. Serve them and love them. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll win them to Christ. But the Bible, it also says if you're not saved, or if you are saved and you're not married, you don't marry inside the kingdom. And anybody who looks at somebody and raps, oh, we're so happy for you because you found a guy or you found a girl, even though that guy or that gal is far from God, they're being a false prophet. What they should be looking at and saying, whoa, 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 time out. Check this, check this a second. Let's be careful here. Anything that okays lying or some other thing, this is not going to come from the Holy Spirit. Anything that's contrary to the teaching of Jesus as Lord, the one that we obey, is contrary to the Spirit. So we, we all know, when we sit here today, we all know that you know, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. An unbeliever can say Jesus is Lord. What the meaning of this is, is does it play out in my life? Does it play out in my obedience? Does it play out in my following Jesus as Lord? So, as we come to chapter 12, he, he's really beginning to, to pour into the spiritual gifts, and he lays this first kind of uh, you know, instruction before us. Listen, if it does anything that discredits who Jesus is or undermines who Jesus is or it, it in any way promotes something that doesn't promote Jesus as Lord, 
pitch it out. Pitch it out. So the, the church is supposed to weigh out any word that comes its way. We're supposed to weigh it out and say, listen, does this seem like what God would say to us? Does it match up with what Scripture would say to us? Is there a reason for this to be here? Is this just an interruption? What is this really about? And the church is supposed to weigh, to weigh in that. Now, when we think about spiritual gifts, uh, remember this. We'll, we'll talk more about this next week. Spiritual gifts are not talents. Uh, talents are still a blessing of God. You know, some of you sang, Rick sang Sunday night, did a great job Sunday night. Thank you. You blessed us Sunday night with your song. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a vocal talent to be able to sing. Others have uh, talents. Guess what? If, if Rick decided not to live for God, he'd still have his talent. Unbelievers have talents. An unbeliever may be a great guitar player. An unbeliever, unbeliever may be a great artist. An unbeliever may have all kinds of, of different talents. It's our responsibility to use our talents to extend the kingdom of God. Listen, you've been given talents not just for your glory or your ease. We've been given talents to extend the kingdom of God. But the talents that we're giving, uh, God has just blessed us with, and many, many people have them. Spiritual gifts are given at salvation. They are given to us as a manifestation of the Spirit to flow through the believer. To flow through the believer. And again, this is one of those points where you look and it would be so much easier uh, in, in our understanding to simply say, um, we're going to look at what people like to do and tell them to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, there's, there's a lady in our church. She may be here tonight. Uh, I'm looking around. I can't see everybody's faces, so she may be. But uh, she's around here. She's pretty quiet. And yet at Christmas time, she invited over 40 people to church. You know, at Easter time, invite over 30 people to church. And there's just this, this freedom and this gifting to be an evangelist, to, to share, that is just a gifting inside of her that just, you know, maybe you wouldn't pick it out in a five-minute conversation, but after you get talking to you, it's there it is. God gifts us as he will. Now, there are roles in the church. And one of the roles in the church is we are all supposed to be worshipers. We're all supposed to be people of prayer. We're all supposed to be generous. But some people are given the gift of giving, and God gives them the ability to make money and give a lot of money. And that's, that, he's given that ability to, to bless the kingdom and to extend the kingdom and to you know, feed people and clothe people and do things. That'd be a wonderful gift to have. Uh, some people are really just mighty gifted evangelists. All of us are called to be evangelists. But there are other gifts that are, that, that, that are going to be manifest through, through the believer. You have spiritual gifts if you're born again. And this is why we encourage you to go through starting point 
It's going to help you begin to identify some of those gifts and, and encourage you in how to use them. Now, there's three key thoughts that you need to know before we go. Each person has some gift mix. 99 times out of 100, it's not just one gift. You have several, and some of them are white hot in you, and others are you know, maybe a little weaker in you, but they're at whatever level that God wants you to have them. He gives you the varieties are usually not just one thing. And so you have gifts. It's in the expression of our gifts that we discover one of the key pieces of life to the full. Fulfillment comes from expressing your divinely given gift. There is a sense of life mattering, life counting. There's a sense of fulfillment that is the overflow of the expression of your gift. That God gives us, Jesus described it this way when the disciples talked to him about the the woman at the well. He said, I have meat to eat you know not of. He wasn't talking about physical meat. He was talking about the fulfillment that comes as he administered to this woman at the well and spoke into her life. And he says, you guys don't get this yet. But right now, I'm sitting here pretty satisfied. Pretty satisfied. It's been a good day. It's been a good day. This is the overflow of a gift. It's not about giving glory to us. It's not about gaining position to us, which is what was happening inside the church of Corinth. They were looking and trying to gain position, trying to gain honor, and he's going to talk about that all through these these verses. No, the purpose of this gift was to serve others. Gifts come as as God orders them. This is the second uh, thing you've got to understand. We don't get to pick them. God orders them. God puts them in, a, in us as he sees them. You know, I remember as a young boy, when, uh, as a young Christian young man, and beginning to have opportunities to speak at places. And, and I can remember so clearly uh, the first time I began to realize that this was something God was doing in me and not something I was doing myself. And when others began to recognize that and say something to me about it. And, and I, began to, I began to want to do that more and more. There's much of a gift that is free. You just, it's a gift. You just, you just get it. And, and there's a freedom in it. It's, it's an easiness to do it. It's a, a, a confidence in it. A, just an assurance in it. But, even from that time when, that, when I began to recognize that gift, I have still had to work to build a biblical foundation for that gift to stand on. And whatever gift you have, you've got to build a biblical foundation. You've got to have a right understanding biblically for it to stand on so you don't get caught up in the flesh and caught up in yourself. But God orders that. And, and here's the third thing you've got to understand about it. It is given for the common good. We are to build up the body of Christ. 
They were trying to use this in Corinth for position and power and prestige and control. They were trying to manufacture uh, gifts for themselves. And Paul was telling them, look, that's not the purpose of, of the gifts. The gifts are to do something good for other people. It's for the common good. So you have a gift, and, and each team member inside of the church is to express his gift so the church may be built up. The body as a whole gets built up in sound doctrine to know how to advance the kingdom. It's about the work of the Spirit, not us. It's given to us so that people can be ministered to, so that individuals can be edified in faith. And it's, the gift is given to us so that God may be glorified in the world. So we're going to leave it at that tonight, and I, and I, I want to encourage you to kind of read through these over the next several days, and also to read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. If you have questions about things you're reading there, I, I put my email address on here. Email them to them, and during this series, we will talk about it. But I, I want to tell you, you don't want to miss the expression of your gift. You want to know what it is, and uh, and, and not be ignorant of it and use it. The Holy Spirit wants this. Now, there are those who believe the Holy Spirit doesn't work this way any longer. There are those who have a traditional or charismatic leanings that go out places that the Scripture gives us some boundaries in. Uh, when we begin to cling to the Word, we usually get in trouble from both sides. But our call is to cling to what the Word of God says. That's our call. Our call is to look at what the Word of God says, see what it, what it teaches us, and to let our view be established from the Word. We want to be a healthy, biblical church, not one like Corinth at this time, but a healthy, biblical, gifted, Spirit-led, Spirit-filled church. Amen? Okay, I've gone fast tonight. This is the introduction. Um, and we'll dive into it more next week. Let's all stand together and we can pray. Father, I just ask you to help us uh, to uh, teach this in a way that is, we can catch it and learn it and grow in it. And, and Father, let us set our traditions aside. Uh, let us set what some experience might tell us aside and let us look clearly at what your word teaches us. We know the Corinthian people were going by experience. They were going by their culture. They were going by many, many things that Paul was having to correct. We want, we, we want to make none of those mistakes. We want to be a healthy, spirit-filled, spirit-led church in all that we do. Teach us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I love you. Have a great night. I hope this blessed you tonight.